Well, you have to open up two spaces. First of all, we're going to open up the book of John. We're only going to be there just a second. Um, and uh, we're really going to spend the bulk of our time in Psalm chapter 91. So um, as you are uh, turning to John chapter 15, uh, we're going to just take a moment and look in, in what John has to say um, about this very important topic we're going to be discussing today. Um, so in John chapter 15... We're only going to look at the, the very beginning of it, actually, uh, verses 4 and verse 5. Now, Jesus is giving a very long discussion to his, to his disciples um, in the book of John before he heads off um, into the cross and then beyond. And so this is his last real opportunity to share his heart with his disciples in this form and fashion. And so as he's speaking to them, you can hear the tenderness that just sort of flows out of his voice. And in verse 4, he is encouraging his apostles to follow him. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. In verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the title of this message, and I'll continue to talk as you're turning over to Psalms chapter 91. The title of this message is, Keep It Secret, Keep It Safe. We're trying to give you guys some tools to help you in your daily walk with God. This entire series has been about the nuts and bolts of Christianity, the tools that are necessary to live a more fulfilling and fruitful life with Christ. Jesus says in his discussion with the disciples that in order for you to live a more fully realized walk with God, you have to abide with him. You have to dwell with him. You have to spend your time with him. So I'm going to look at three different things, three different tools, and this will be the final, uh, I guess, touch that we're going to do in this series. Starting next week, we're going to be doing a six-week series on spiritual disciplines, and it won't be the first time we've discussed them. It won't be the last. Um, I believe repetition is the best way to learn things. The more we repeat it, the more we learn it. But this week, the final thing we're going to deal with is silent. I'm calling it silence solitude, and soaking. I was thinking of, Phil, I was thinking of you, brother, when I was thinking about this. I mean, silence and solitude, I know that's a different thing for you as a teacher. You're like me, you're wordy, and silence tends to be taken up by our, by, by our own activity. Um, but, <laughs> but when you're out hunting, and I was also thinking about you, I was thinking of my brother Dan, all, the, all our hunters that we have in here, and, and the idea that there is something peaceful when you're out in the woods. I'll never forget the first time I went uh, unsuccessful moose hunting. Um, all of my moose hunting has been unsuccessful. But, but the first time I was unsuccessful, I was with my brother Dan. And uh, we got up early in the morning, and we drove out to a secret place out in uh, somewhere on, on K Beach. I, I can't tell you where or else Dan would have to kill you. But um, uh, as you got out there, we, he, he pulled off. He was very, he swore me to secrecy, so much so that I think I've even forgotten the location. I couldn't find it again if you asked me to. Um, but we got there, we... 
we walked out there, you know, we're walking real quiet because you never don't know what's going to be. And we finally get to this spot, and it's just, you know, fallen log, and you're just out there, and we're waiting for the sun to rise, waiting for the visibility to come up. And we're, of course, looking for the moose. Um, we didn't see the moose, but it was just amazing, the, the solitude, the quiet, the, um, the, the moment where you could just, just soak up God's creation. And as the sun slowly started to rise, I remember taking my phone out and, and just just taking a few pictures quietly as the sun began to slowly make its way up above the horizon. We never did see any moose, but we had a wonderful time just spending um, a quiet moment with the Lord, with his creation, with each other as men. And it was truly an amazing moment. It was a pivotal moment for me. It was the moment when I, I think I've, I've fully realized that Alaska is where I've always been meant to be, and I don't ever want to go anywhere else. I really enjoy it here. And it's this silence, this solitude, and this moment of soaking that I think God is calling us to. And so that's, I, want, I just want to have those words sort of hang in your mind, along with what Jesus said when he said, abide with him, as we start looking at chapter 91 in the book of Psalms. Now, this is an interesting psalm. Um, a lot of you don't realize this, is, but 90 and 91 are two of the oldest psalms that we have in the book. Most people think of David as a great songwriter, and he did write the majority or a good portion of the book of Psalms, but he didn't write them all. Most theologians and historians will tell you that Psalm 90 and 91 were written by Moses as one of the most original psalm writers that we have. And it's interesting that, book, that chapter 90 is all about the, the, the corporate uh, global activity of God as God is saving his people and doing massive and amazing things. And then it rolls right into Psalm 91 where Moses then brings it right down to himself. And he starts writing from his heart about what God is doing with him and for him. And we'll break it down a little more as we read through this, but I'm going to read the first couple verses for you as we, as we get started here. Psalm 91, starting in the first verse, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Can you hear the tones from Jesus' discussion with his disciples? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day of the pestilence that stalks the darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent." For he will, give you his, he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in your ways. And they will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he, is, because he has my, he's known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. 
and I will be with him in trouble, and I will rescue him in honor. With a long life I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Now what you're reading here is an interesting discussion. It's a discussion between two individuals in the form of a song. One of the things that we do occasionally, and, I, and Phil and I, we try to do this sparingly because we know that a lot of our Baptist sensibilities get frustrated when we do this, is we like to do responsive readings. And I know whenever you do a responsive reading, everybody says, oh my goodness, isn't that a Catholic thing? Isn't that, a, isn't that an Episcopalian thing? Isn't that a, a more of a liturgical thing? Isn't that something those crazy Lutherans do every once in a while? Well, yes, yes, and yes. And it's also a Christian thing. And you see this, this is one of the most original responsive readings that we have. Because what you're seeing is a conversation between two individuals that all of a sudden in the midst of it, God breaks in. And it's kind of an interesting discussion. So you see um, the first person that's speaking in verses 1 and 2. The second person person is speaking in verses 3 and 4. And then you see the first person return in verses 5 through 8. And then the second person responds in verses 9 through 13. Then all of a sudden, God just shows up like a thunderclap. And he replies and responds to the discussion that the two people are having in the final verses of the psalm. And it's an interesting discussion between who God is and how he dwells in us and how he uses us to accomplish his ends. Now, we start off right in the beginning of this, and we see that God is, God's name is actually given us in four different ways. Now, you don't see this very often in the Psalms. In fact, um, very infrequently will you actually see um, God's name represented this, this many different ways in a single Psalm. Usually, the writers will confine themselves to like one aspect. They won't go to all four or even more. But we see that at the very beginning, it says that you, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High... The word there is Elion. It's the most high. It's one of the oldest words that we have to define who God is. And then we see the next time, in the, right in the last part of that first verse, he says that we will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The word there is Shaddai. And we see that word also, a very ancient word. And, and this is another one of those reasons why we know this must have come from the pen of Moses. But most theologians believe that Moses wasn't just writing this from his own brain. Obviously, he was being used by the Holy Spirit to write this down. But many people believe that this was a song that was commonly sung by the children of Israel that Moses was putting down through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we see Elion first with the Most High. We see see Shaddai coming forth in the Almighty. And then we get the word Lord. Now, that's an amazing word. You see, it's in all capitalizations there in, the, in, in verse 2. And that word is Yahweh. That is the word that Moses was given on the mountain when he first encountered God. And then you see the final piece of that where it says, My God in whom I trust, that word is simply Elohim. So we see the four different beautiful words of God being used in conjunction to draw out the essence of what, what the psalmist is trying to convey. We see in the beginning, he says that you're dwelling in the shelter of the Most High. And then we see abiding in the shadow of the Almighty. The word dwell and abide are complementary phrases. They're synonyms in the Old Testament. They both mean basically the same thing. It's to stay overnight, to dwell, to spend time with. When I was growing up, one of the greatest things that we ever did as kids was to have a sleepover. 
it was probably one of the most, uh, most troubling things that my parents had to deal with because they always had to play host to a, to a range of kids that come and spend time in our house. It meant that we were going to have pizza. It meant that there was going to be popcorn on the floor. It meant that the pull-out couch was going to be used and the, and the dust was going to be you know, wiped off those, that bed frame. And it was a time when we would, the kids would stay up all night watching TV or doing what kids do in the evening. But for us kids, it was the most amazing adventure time, right? It was a time that you got to not sleep in your own bed, not to be in your own room. It's to where the rules are set aside for a time as you got to spend it with your best friends. You know, I, I, there was that transition point as a teenager where you weren't able to sleep in the same bed anymore as guys. Um, and I don't know if that, that doesn't happen with girls, probably not. But with guys, there's that moment where it's no longer cool to sleep in the same bed. And then things had to change. You know, the couch wasn't pulled out. But up to that point, it was just an adventure to be able to spend the night with your best friend. Well, this is kind of the image that God wants to have with us when he says, abide with me. It's the same phrase that, that Jesus is using in the New Testament when he says, if you abide in me, then I will be with you. If you dwell with me, if you sleep over with me, if you tabernacle with me, if you spend time with me, I will spend time with you. It's a beautiful picture. It really is. Now, look what it says here when it says that we're dwelling in the shelter of the Most High and it talks about that shadow. Now, a lot of times we see the word shadow, we wonder what this phrase means, and we have to bring it forward into our own context because this isn't something that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. But remember now, this is written by the hand of Moses in a time when the Israelites were desperately in need of God's hand, his mercy, and his grace. A time when they were wandering through the wilderness and they had the pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night to guide them and protect them. Some theologians have said that 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 pillar of cloud was so huge that it cast a shadow over the the children of Israel. So when they were wandering through the desert, even the effects of the sun that would normally affect any human being out in the desert was mitigated by the hand of God as he protected them and cared for them and allowed them to wander through the the deep part of the desert without fear that they were going to fall prey to the danger there. And so the idea of the shadow of God's hand overstretching over us would protect them. But there's also something else that's there too. The idea that a shadow comes on also gives the idea of protection and to be able to hide that individual. Now I'm saying that because I want us to understand that when we come to the Lord, we come to him bearing everything really. We come to him bearing all of our pain and our, and our, and our struggles, all of our frustrations, all of the issues that come in our daily life. And sometimes when we bring these here, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes to give them to the Lord. Peter tells us that we should cast our cares on him because he cares for us. But there's more to it than that. It's not just simply tossing them out as though they don't mean anything to us. Truth of the matter is, the things that are cares for us, the things that we struggle with, are the hardest for us to let go. So when the apostle tells us to cast them on Christ, he is thinking about all these different areas. He is conjuring up in his mind the image of what it means to truly give everything we have to God and that concept of abiding with Jesus. You know, when you're in a tent with your best friend and you have a couple sleeping bags and that tent is closed up to keep the mosquitoes and the bugs out at night, you're keeping the bugs out, but you're keeping everything in. And if you know anything about camping, 
And you know that the, the average food that's eaten on a trail is probably not what you would get in, in you know, regular dinner at home. And oftentimes it makes things happen to boys that cause distinctive smells to come out. So what stays out the tent is one thing, but what stays in the tent is something different, right? But when you're there with your best friend, you can't share. I mean, you can't hide that, right? Everything comes out. And, you know, it's just the two of you there. And if one person knows that it's not, he's not the source of the smell, the other one must be it, right? You can't hide these things. Everything is laid bare. All of your smells, all of your sins, everything that you are. And so when we're in a tent with Jesus, when we're abiding with him, when we're tabernacling with him, we're dwelling with him in a sleepover, there is nothing hidden between us and God. It's all right there in the open, warts and all. And that's when we truly have an opportunity to draw closer to him because we put aside that. And you know, I tell you, when you're with your best friend and you're accepted by your friend, warts and all, that's a pretty powerful thing. And it was when I was growing up. And that's the kind of friendship that Jesus wants to have with us. He wants us to be able to be there with him. So when he says, you're my refuge and my fortress, we get those images, those strong, powerful, mighty Im- images with stones and walls and, and rocks to put our backs to. But ultimately, it's in God that we trust. And this is what God is calling us to do, to have these times of silence and solitude as we seek to soak in what God has for us. This week, I came across an an interesting author. Um, Typically, I confine my research to uh, English writers because um, I speak English for the most part, and I don't read other languages well. Even Greek, I struggle with without uh, good dictionaries. But I came across an author who was a best-selling author in Japan. His name is um, Haruki Murakami. And I know, Mike, you're probably saying, oh, yeah, I know him. I've read everything he's written, right? Um, Phenomenal writer. He really is. And and, and the more I read about him, the more I'm interested. I actually got so interested, I bought three of his uh, books online so that I can read more because he just has a way of of defining things. And this is a quote from one of his books. Now, he's writing a fiction story about an individual that is, is seeking to draw closer to his spiritual roots. But this is a quote from his book. He says, like the dry ground welcoming the rain... He let the solitude and silence soak in. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Like the, like the dry ground welcoming the rain, we need to let the solitude and the silence soak in. You know, this is what the psalmist is trying to convey. Because he wants us to be able to draw closer to who Jesus is. There was a, uh, an American by the name of Thomas Merton he was a monk, a Trappist monk, you know, and he was a prolific writer. He wrote quite a bit, you know, and when you are a monk and you've given yourself over to silence and solitude and living in a monastery, I guess you have lots of time on your hands to write and to read, and, and I know not all of us have that ability. So he actually wrote this quote, and I thought it was pretty powerful. He's writing it to the rest of us, those of us that don't have the privilege to, to separate ourselves from the world for months at a time. And he says, not all men are called to be hermits. But all men need enough silence and solitude in their lives to enable the deep inner voice of their own true self to be heard occasionally. Merton goes on to say this. He says, when that inner voice is not heard, when men cannot attain that spiritual peace that comes from being perfectly at one with God and himself, his life is always miserable and exhausting. 
Merton continued, he said that for this man cannot go on happily for long unless he is in contact with the springs of spiritual life which are hidden in the depths of his own soul. If man is constantly exiled from his own home, locked out from his own spiritual solitude, he ceases to be a true person. He no longer lives as a man. I thought, that's pretty powerful. The idea of being locked out of our own world, our own brain, our own soul. A few weeks ago, we talked about one of the greatest gifts that God gave us, and that's the Holy Spirit. You know, it truly is the most powerful thing that God could have given us as Jesus went to stand in heaven, to be our mediator between God and man in heaven. But to have the Holy Spirit dwell within us, to be that translator, to be that source of power, to be that place that we connect to, but to connect to it properly, we need to take moments to just be quiet. This is hard for me. I've always struggled being quiet. I've always struggled. I know, Tommy, you find it hard to believe, don't you? Yeah, I I do. You know, it's like, and Sandy complains this all the time. You know, we're driving down the road and it's like quiet in the car, you know? We don't have the radio on. We just listen to the sound of the engine and the the trees going by. And and I just feel compelled to speak. And she's she's always like, why do you have to fill the silence up? Just because it's there doesn't mean you have to fill it up, you know? Sometimes it's better just to be silent. So, and I'm trying to learn. I'm getting better at it. But I find that the only time that I can really be silent is when I'm alone, right? Is when there's no one else around. And it's at those times that even then I try to intrude upon it. It's at those times I even try to sit there and I'm like, well, it's silent. There's no one else around. Who can I talk to? Oh, Jesus is always there, right? He is, he is a friend that sticks close to the brother. Maybe I can just spend some time talking to Jesus. But when that happens, is usually I'm the one talking. He's the one listening. That's not always Right? We should have it the other way around. You know, what, what, would it be, what would happen if all of us were to carve out maybe 30 to 45 minutes every week? And that's actually a small amount of time, right? But if we carved out 30 to 45 minutes each week to just sit and not talk to anyone or anything and just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Imagine what he would tell us. Imagine what we would learn as we allowed the heart of God to speak directly to our soul. That'd be pretty powerful. Henry David Thoreau said that he's never found a companion so companionable as solitude. And there's something nice about being quiet and alone. There's something nice about just stepping outside of ourselves and letting God speak. You know, when I see the words, he is my refuge and my fortress, I've changed my attitude. When I was a young man, I thought of swords and fighting and battle. I thought of rushing into combat, combating whatever it is that God wanted me to fight, whether it was the enemy of this or the, the, the demon of that or whether it was just my own sin and pride, which, you know, I always put aside that that's not nearly as bad as some of these other ones, right? Because I like my pride a little bit. I, I, I have to have it. At least I thought I did. But as I get older and I realize that God is stripping away some of those, those rough edges as he's moving me closer, and I look at, I look at refuge and fortress in a different way. I look at it as time to be alone and be quiet. I find that sitting there on the back of a four-wheeler in the middle of nowhere with nothing but time and silence is truly a moment when I can be with the Lord. And not everybody gets out there, not everybody has that time to do that. But I think that we can find those moments of silence wherever God is. In verse 3, 
the psalmist continues to write as Moses is sharing his heart. He says he wants us that, that, that this response is, is God is the one that, deliver, that will deliver us from the snare of the trapper, from the deadly pestilence. Notice how he's doing two different things there. He's, he's showing the, that God is going to be there personally with a, with a trapper's snare. That's a one-on-one individual. A trapper only snares one animal at a time. And so it's a, it's a personal thing. And then we see on the other side of it, the idea of pestilence that goes forward. That's That's the providential side. That's the idea that God is going to give you all the big stuff too. He's going to handle the tiny little bit of stuff in our life. He's going to handle the big things that affect us in a global way. The psalmist continues to write. He says he will cover you with his feathers. In the New New American Standard and King James, it says the pinions. But it just means feathers. And under his wings, you may seek refuge. I love that analogy. One of, my, one of my personal theologies that I draw most of my inspiration from is my belief in the understanding of what it is to be the bride of Christ. And that as Christians, we are a body of, of one, unity for a purpose. Our purpose is to be the bride of Christ. And I know women get this more than men because men are more manly. We don't, we don't want to think of ourselves in that womanly role. But the truth is that Jesus is the groom. He is the husband. He is the father. He is the man in the relationship. And, and guys, uh, sorry to say that we are the woman in the relationship, right? We are the bride of Christ. And that's maybe hard for us to deal with, but we need to accept that because he is here to protect us and to guide us and to care for us, just as you wish to protect and guide and care for your wife and your spouse and your loved one. And that feeling of comfort that they have is very beautiful. So when you see words like this, that he will cover you with his feathers, he will, he will, uh, you will seek refuge under his wings, it's a beautiful picture of, of, of the image of what a marriage is like. In some cultures, when you get married, especially in the more of the ancient ones, when, it, when they go through the wedding ceremony, there's a place there where the, the man will actually take his cloak off and drape it over his wife-to-be, in the course of saying his vows and, and honoring her. The image there is that this cloak that protects me will now protect you as well, and you are under my care, my protection. It's a beautiful image that we see here, and this is what Christ is trying to share with us. That in our moments of silence and solitude, as we seek to soak in the love of God, we can lie in the comfort of knowing that he is overshadowing us. He's covering over us as the bride of Christ. The last part of that verse in verse 4 is he's our shield and our bulwark. It's again a beautiful, beautiful picture. As he continues on, the psalmist is writing even more about this. You notice in verses 5 through 8, we're now in the, the first speaker again. He's talking about this terror by night and the arrows that fly by day. You know, it's interesting. When you see phrases like terror by night, you ought to pause, right? We ought to take a moment to, to step back and see what is it really being said. Oftentimes when you have translations that come in, especially as ancient as this, and this psalm is, is one of the most ancient that we have, and the Hebrew in there is a pretty pretty old. And the translating this into English is not always easy. And so there's always these moments where these idioms, these, these phrases that were particular to the Jews of that day, now 4,000, 5,000 years later, we're trying to bring this out. And so the word is translated word for word, terror by night. But what does this really mean? We don't really know fully. We speculate And we can extrapolate from our own experience. 
But this is a phrase that we may never fully embrace or understand until we step into heaven. Most theologians say that this is, they're talking about the idea of spiritual attack. The Jews of those days, they they viewed dreams and visions of something that was uh, supernatural in nature, and it held a lot of sway. And so when you had a bad dream or the night would come, you would oftentimes wake up like some of us do, with cold sweats and fearful of the dark. And it's at times like that when, when the darkness starts to rise and we need the Lord to push through. When I was overseas, I had these two, um, uh, these two church members. They were interesting fellas, and, or in, not fellas, people. It was a couple. Uh, her name was Heather and his name was Henry. They were from Canada. And um, just an, an interesting fellow, uh, group, uh, family. They had a large family, homeschooled. They were just really good. They loved Jesus with all their heart and soul. And they were incredibly tall. And you know my feeling about tall people, right? After a certain height, they're almost too tall to talk to. So um, I struggled because he was like past six feet. So, you know, I'm really looking up to see him. But um, he's just a really neat fellow. He became the treasurer for the church and really became a strong right arm for me for a season. And... Um, uh, his wife was sharing with me uh, something that happened to them that just thrilled her soul. She was having a particularly bad dream. Didn't know what it was. Still can't remember it to this day. But the dream was just really affecting her so, so much so that she woke up. And she woke up to her husband, all six and a half feet tall of him, standing on their bed, sound asleep, and he was waving what looked to be like you know, an imaginary sword, and hollering at the top of his lungs to get back in the name of Jesus. I kid you not. This is not a joke. This really happened. She said to me, she said, as soon as she saw her husband sleep fighting with an enemy that she didn't know, it's like there was a sense of calm washed over her, and she was able to roll over and go back to sleep. Now, I don't know how she did that with a six and a half foot tall standing on a king-sized bed, waving an imaginary sword, shouting at you know, imaginary foes, but it worked. She went back to sleep, and she said she never felt slept more soundly than she did that night. She woke up the next morning, talked to her husband about it. He didn't remember a thing. It's amazing how these things happen. But it's a beautiful picture of what the Lord does for us, right? So when the demons of our darkness come in, He's there battling. He's there fighting. He's there guiding us. And even when we think we're having a moment of silent solitude, as we're seeking to, to soak in the love and mercy of grace of God, Jesus is there fighting the battle for us. He is our bulwark, our shield, our strong right arm. Look what it says there, the arrow that flies by day. Some people feel like this is, a, um, this is a representation of war. I believe this is a contrast. The first part is the spiritual attacks. The second part is the physical. You see the same thing that happens in reverse. In verse 6, he talks about the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or the destruction in the, that lays the waste at noon. We see the idea there, again, of the, the spiritual as well as the physical. He talks about the thousand that may, may, they may fall at his side or the 10,000 that, that drops by his right arm. You can see that, that there is a, there's a strength and a power that God represents. And I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but it may be a little dangerous being next to a six and a half foot tall standing on the bed swinging an imaginary sword. But would you rather be anywhere else? You know, I'd rather be next to Jesus swinging that sword, killing the enemy, than to be outside his reach. Where the enemies 
abound. And that's what he's saying. I want to be right next to him. I think Sunday school, um, I don't know, Mike, did you talk about the, uh, uh, the, the battle that was fought with uh, Jonathan and his servant um, this week, or was it last week? Oh, it was last year. <sighs> I, <laughs> I'm, I'm completely off then. Okay, well, then I forget about that. Well, in that particular story of the Old Testament, you have Jonathan and his servant, which we don't have a name for. He was the armor bearer. And the image, those two guys took on an entire encampment of enemy soldiers. And Jonathan, who was a, battles, a warrior in his own mind, in his own right, and a, a mighty man of God, just like David was, he stepped in that battle. And everywhere he stepped and swung his sword, he knew that he was going to be safe because his armor bearer was at his back. And see, that's the image that we have of Jesus, right? And most of the time, we like to be the one being the sword fighter, swinging in, hoping that God has got our back. But it's really just the opposite. See, Jesus is the one that's waiting in, swinging the sword, and we've got his back. Not that he needs us, but he wants us. Because I'd rather be right behind him than in front of him any day of the week. Because I don't want to stand in the way of the living God. I want to be by his side. And so we see that the, this, the, the psalmist is continuing to talk. Look what it says in verse 11. He says, he will give his angels charge over you. Does that sound familiar? This is the exact verse that the enemy twisted to try to get Jesus to fall into some sinful, weird trap as he was tempted in the wilderness. And Jesus had an answer to that. Obviously, he did. But it's still a beautiful picture. You know, this is one of the few places that we find in the Old Testament where angels are discussed. It's one of the only places in the book of Psalms where angels are brought into the equation. He says he will give his angels charge over you. If you read this and you can think forward into some of the other passages, one of my favorites is found in Hebrews chapter 1, the final verse. Where in Hebrews chapter 1, the final verse, it says that all angels, all angels are ministering spirits given towards those who shall become heirs of salvation. Every single person that is in this room that calls Jesus Christ their own has angels, not just one or two, several that are guiding them and protecting them. My wife is swears up and down there's going to be a room right on this side of the gate to get into heaven. And that's the room that the angels are going to bring their people in and have a strong, stern discussion with about all the work they had to do to keep them alive. I know my angels are going to have a, a, a long discussion with me. There might be some bruising at the end of it. But I'm, and I know I'm going to step into heaven, but I'm telling you, I know I put my angels through the ringer because I often do silly things. But I'm thankful that God has given me that. You know, it's, I grew up in, in the 80s when it came to television. There was a lot of television shows back in those days that had a lot to talk about angels. And almost every one of them talks about how when we die, we get to become angels, right? And if, and, if, and if you're really lucky and you work really hard, then you can earn your wings and your halo and you get to go to heaven and do what angels do up there, which they never defined. They just said angels do cool things up there. And, and the, the, but there's those other angels, you know, the ones that are not quite good enough, the ones that are stuck down on earth trying to earn those wings, being like guards angel kind of deal. You saw those shows, kind of silly and weird, kind of odd, not biblical at all. And if somebody wants to go to heaven to be an angel, great, go for it. I don't want to be an angel when I get to heaven because the Bible's pretty clear. The angels work for us. And that's something to be remembered about. 
So when Jesus is give, when, when when Moses is telling us that that God will give His angels charge over us and to guard our ways and to bear us up in their hands, so that we will not even strike our foot against a stone, that is a powerful reminder of how great God is. Now, I also find it interesting that when the enemy tried to twist this, it was after forty days that Jesus was in the wilderness, fasting, and in solitude as he sought to draw his self closer in his human side to where God wanted him to be, as he was giving us an example of what it meant to step away from our busy life and get into something a little deeper. The last part of verses 12 and 13 deal with the same basic concept. The strength that we have will be given, us, given to us by God himself. One of my favorite passages in verse 13 where it talks about the the lion and the cobra. And then the psalmist defines this, not just a regular, everyday, run-of-the-mill lion. We're talking a serious lion. It says a young lion, a lion that is is full-on in its strength, the most dangerous kind of lion that you can imagine, the lion that's trying to make make its mark in the world and trying to feed its, its, uh, its pride. And then you have the word serpent. One of the few places you'll find this in the, in the New Testament, in, in, um, or in the Old Testament, in almost every place that this word appears is actually translated as, as a sea monster or monster or giant beast. Uh, we would call it dragon. Um, uh, it's, it was a powerful, it's, a, it's like a cobra times a bazillion, you know. He says that we will trample them down with the power of the Lord. It's pretty powerful when you think about it. In most cases, the serpent represents the enemy himself. And I find it interesting that Peter talked about the fact that the enemy, the, Satan himself, is, is, a, is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour as he wanders the earth. But in this instance, the lion and the dragon, the serpent, we will be trampling upon by the power that he has in us. The final three verses we see is, is God's response to all this. God is saying, because he, because we have loved him, he will deliver us. He will set us securely on high because we have known his name. We will call upon him and he will answer and he will be with us in times of trouble and he will rescue us and honor us. And he will give us a long life that we might be satisfied in God. And, we will let, and he will let us see our salvation as it flows from him. Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 says that there's a time to be silent and a time to talk. A philosopher by the name of William Sims said that solitude bears the same relation to the mind that sleep does to the body. It affords it with the necessary opportunity for repose and recovery. The idea here, if you haven't gotten down yet, is the idea that we should seek moments of silence and solitude as we seek to be soaking up the mercy and grace of God. But in the midst of all that, you can't help but see the awesome majesty and the holiness of God as well. And I don't know if I always bring this out in my messages as much as I should. I focus a lot on the mercy and grace of God because it's what's been applied so heavily in my life. 
But you can't always focus on the mercy and the love of God because that's only one aspect. The other aspect is the holiness of God, the righteousness of God that's so perfect and so amazing that it just transcends anything we can imagine. The best way I can give this to you guys as we are seeking moments to, to, to ponder what we're, th- what we're reading about today is that the righteousness and the holiness of God demanded that he go to the cross for us. I'm going to say that again so you guys get it. The holiness of God demanded that Christ die on the cross. The love of Jesus made him want to. And they intersected at that point where he laid out his arms on the cross and he said, it is finished. It's a powerful moment. I say that to you because I want you guys to understand that there is activity in being silent and seeking solitude. One of my most favorite characters in history is Teddy Roosevelt. He said that he didn't, he didn't put forth a doctrine of silly ease, but yet a doctrine of strenuous life. It's a man who strove against everything that he could strive against. But the center that he had, hopefully, was God. And even in the midst of our struggling to survive here, in the midst of everything we have, we need to take a moment to step back and let God just soak us up with his mercy, his grace, and allow his holiness to permeate our every being. And we see that in his final bit of this psalm where he says, with a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. That's the salvation that Christ has for us. And that's the salvation that Jesus mentioned when he said, abide in me and I in you. So this morning, you have to ask yourself, where are you in this? If you're like me and you struggle with finding moments of solitude and silence, maybe this is an encouragement to find that this week. And I know it's hard. I have four children. Fortunately, most of them are gone. And I know that growing when those kids were younger, finding moments of silence in the house were not easy. Can't count the number of times I had to go to the bathroom seeking a moment of quiet, nothing more. I just needed to get away. But even then, and Sandy would be the first one to tell you, you're only there a couple minutes before the knock on the door begins. Hey, Mom, where you at? I'm going to the bathroom. I know, but I just have this one question. I know it's tough. I know you may not always think you can find it. But I know that if you ask diligently that the Lord give this to you, you'll find that the moments of silence and solitude will come. But you have to carve it out. You have to make it real for yourself. And you have to be committed to it. Because if you're not, no one else will be. So I encourage you this week, seek the moments of silence and solitude. Seek an opportunity to soak the love of mercy, love and mercy of Christ of Jesus Christ into your soul. If you're sitting there today and you've never actually given your heart to God, you're still in that moment where you're seeking and longing for something greater than yourself. If you don't really know what it means to find those moments of quiet, because when you're alone, all you hear is your pain crying out to you. And you can't hear Jesus 
whispering to you. The first step in your journey is going to be right here. The altar is going to be open, and I encourage you to come. Maybe you're seeking to lay your burdens on Jesus and just give it to him. Maybe you're seeking to begin your walk with him for the first time. Maybe you just want to know Jesus is there to give you that sense of peace. Whatever your need is, the altar is going to be open. I know Sandy's going to come here in a moment and play. We're going to have Janet. We're going to have the rest of the musicians up here and singing and preparing to lead us as we seek to close. And I know some of us are already tapping our fingers, wondering how are we going to get home in time to see the last quarter of whatever game you want to watch. I don't know what it is you're seeking to do after you leave here. I am going to gift you with one thing, is that we are probably going to get out earlier than we normally do. Just hear that, Tony. That's not, what, 20 more minutes, right? Is that where you're going to start the clock now, right? Okay. It won't be 20 more minutes. But before you think about leaving the building, think about what you have right here at this moment. You have an opportunity to be able to start this journey with Christ or start a moment of silent solitude as we seek to know him more. And I encourage you to use this time for your greatest resource and to seek Christ as a true penitent individual wanting to know Christ more. I've been spending a lot of time reading about revivals because I'd like to see a revival break out, not just here, but in this peninsula. I long to be part of a movement like we saw at the turn of the century on the East Coast, the great awakenings, the, the mighty movements of God. I would love to be able to be sort of on the fringe of the epicenter, you know, right where it begins. I don't know if God will ever gift that to me, but I still would love to see God's movement and his love and his activity begin somewhere. And I know that no revival ever began without first taking a moment to stop, to reflect, to repent, and to pray. And I guarantee you, when you take a moment to stop and reflect, your sins will be apparent to you. And you can one by one lay them before God. And I can promise you this, if you lay those sins before him, he will wipe them away. Period. There is no sin too great that he can't forgive except the sin of not coming to him to begin with. I'm going to close with this. I have a grandfather who died and more than likely is in hell today. Right into his last days, he swore that God could not forgive him. He battled hard in World War II. He saw a lot of friends and many enemies fall before him. He was a terrible father and a horrible husband. He provided the basics, not a lot else. He was a much better grandfather than he was anything else. But age had mellowed him. I don't know if my, father, my grandfather ever came to know Christ. My mother and father pray that he did, and they believe that he did. But the rest of us in the family don't think he did. Because he kept saying right to the last day that he couldn't be forgiven. No matter what I said, he wouldn't believe. I hope that you're not like my grandfather. There is no sin that you can commit 
that he can't forgive. Don't leave here today without knowing that. If you don't know him, come to him today. If you do, seek a moment of reflection this week and seek to draw closer to him. Let's go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer. Father, I just love you so much. I don't always know what to say when I'm in your presence. But I'm thankful that your spirit dwells within us. That your spirit is moving within us. That your spirit is speaking for us when the words fail. Father, this week as we come to the end of this series, as we seek to draw closer to you, Father, I ask that you will gift each and every one of us with a moment of silence, a moment of refreshing solitude as we seek to bathe in your mercy and your grace. Father, I ask that you'll be with the young people that are here, those that have lives that are characterized more by action, motion, and noise. Father, I ask that you will give them a moment of quiet solitude, even the young ones as they begin to build the practice of being quiet before the Lord. Father, I ask that you'll give us an opportunity to be like Elijah on the hill as he sought the still small voice of you. Allow us to listen with our heart and our soul. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, please, I cannot make this appeal any stronger. Don't let them leave here today without getting their heart right. Lord, we just put everything that we've talked about this morning into your hands. Guide us and make us more like you as we seek to be conformed to your image. Go before us this week and help us to be your servant in all we do and say. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brother Phil. Amen. If you'll stand for the hymn.